Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that isn't going to bullshit you about the future. Today we have Zoe and Laura. We're going to be talking about eco-socialism um, yet again. We yeah. did kind of an intro to eco-socialism episode a couple months ago. So if you're sitting here wondering, like, what the hell does that mean? Maybe go listen to that one and come back, but we'll also cover it now. Um, but this time we're going to be focusing more on organizing for eco-socialism, fighting against eco-fascism, the pros and cons of legislative organizing, such as Green New Deal, um, and probably more. We have Sus, Angela, and Thea from the Eco-Socialist Working Group joining us as well. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. Yay. Hi. Um, Do you each want to introduce yourselves a little bit? Sure. I'm Thea, um, and I've been involved for a little while in the Eco-Socialist Working Group, and along with Sus, I'm on the steering committee of the Working Group. Um, I'm also a member of Providence DSA, and I also am a professor of political science. Cool. Uh, I'm Sus. I am also on the Eco-Socialist Steering Committee. I have been since January 27, 2018, and I'm a member of LILAC DSA in Philly. Um, awesome. I'm Angela. Um, I'm involved in the Eco-Socialism Working Group. Um, and I have been involved in Columbus CSA, even though I'm not in Columbus at the moment. Very cool. Glad that we have some like geographic diversity. Um, appreciate it. (laughs) Um, so I thought we could start with like the basics as a refresher for folks, um, as well. Um, what is eco-socialism in the way that you'd define it? I think what's powerful about eco-socialism is that it links the climate crisis to global capitalism Mm. and sees the climate crisis as rooted in these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of systemic features of that system. So profit seeking and competition and the sort of growth imperative, exploitation of humans and nature, and also the imperial expansion of capitalism across the globe. So that's the way that eco-socialism, from my perspective, sees the link between climate crisis and capitalism. And then the sort of flip side to that is that building a socialist society is also building a more ecologically balanced um, and within planetary limits society Um, in our utopian vision, right? Not to say that socialist societies or actually existing socialist societies haven't also been environmentally destructive, but I think the way that eco-socialism links the climate crisis and capitalism kind of opens up this possibility that a more just society would also be a more ecologically balanced and harmonious society. Um, So there's like a critique and then there's a positive vision to it as well. Yeah, what I love about eco-socialism is that, like Thea said, it connects um, capitalism and the climate crisis with the global imperial colonial structure, you know, Um, And so eco-socialism is explicitly anti-racist and anti-imperialist, and it calls for indigenous indigenous sovereignty. Um, And it is explicitly socialist feminist. And it's so a critique of capitalism, but it's also, like Thea said, it's this positive, hopeful, joyful um, imagining of society that moves away from 
exploitation and towards community and joy. And um, it's if the climate crisis is the logical endpoint of capitalism, there's no form of capitalism that's going to solve it in a way that is just for everybody. Um, so eco-socialism is, I like to think how we're going to save ourselves. Um, that was beautiful. Everything that Sus and Thea said. Um, it's eco-socialism is, yeah, really the only way out of the climate and ecological crises. Um, it is the recognition that you can't have endless growth on a finite planet, um, which capitalism requires that endless growth so that it can keep lining the pockets of billionaires. Um, Eco-socialism is really the struggle to build um, communities that care for other people and non-human beings and recognize that um, we have to be intentional about <laughs> dismantling um, all oppressions, um, whether it's sexism or racism um, and exploitation of the environment, that these all go hand in hand, um, that we can't fight on just one front for this. Yeah, definitely. I That's love all awesome. of those yeah. yeah, descriptions. That was great. So I feel like a lot of people understand that there's climate catastrophe happening, but are just kind of like debilitatingly anxious about it and don't know what to do. So mm -hmm. as people that organize for this, I wanted to ask all of you, what are some of the favorite eco-socialist actions or projects or kind of any related like things that you've worked on? So some of the stuff that I've done that's in an eco-socialist vein has been community gardening efforts, um, which can be really powerful in that just like sticking your hands in the soil and um, growing food that can feed you that is done in a sustainable way and doing that with other people um, is a great way to build community and also like build systems that are outside of capitalist realms. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, I've also done educational events around eco-socialism, and that can be, I think, a really powerful way to kind of sit with people in the knowledge of climate crisis, um, because it is really isolating, and it can be really tough um, to sit and acknowledge where we are, um, how much time we have to hit which targets. Um, it, it can be tough to think about that, but sitting with people who are also thinking about it and being honest about it um, can be really empowering in a way, even if it can feel despairing on your own. Yeah, I want to echo that. I think that, you know, the, the sort of flip side to the all-encompassing, pervasive, overwhelming aspect of a planetary crisis is that there are so many places to get started on it, right? And like, that's kind of my, like, get out of bed optimistic in the morning way of thinking about it. Like, you know, actually... You know, the climate crisis is, is everywhere. It's generated through um, the system of capitalism. It, it kind of takes place at varying scales. And so you can start, you know, super local and that, that can have effects um, that are kind of more than local. Um, um, so I love, I love what Angela was just saying there. And I do find that um, community education, um, just kind of understanding the basics of what climate change is, who the culprits are, um, and what some potential solutions are is really empowering to people because the narrative that they get is that there's nothing that can be done and it's too late. Um, 
One of the things that I've worked on with folks in my chapter in, in Providence is actually our main kind of campaign for over a year now is an eco-socialist campaign. That's an energy and utilities justice campaign called Nationalized Grid, mm-hmm. um, kind of a, a hashtag um, name that uh, is based on the, the private utility that operates in Rhode Island, which is National Grid. So we're saying Nationalized Grid, like establish a publicly owned, democratically controlled and decarbonized utility. Um, and that's been a very inspiring campaign in terms of, for me personally, and for, for my comrades in the chapter to just understand how the energy and utility system works, which kind of, again, to um, echo what Angela was saying, that kind of education process was really empowering. And then to kind of plot out what a campaign would look like to um, take democratic control back um, over our energy system, which is, you know, for the most part, run for profit is totally captured by the fossil fuel industry. Um, but it's one place to start at that local or state kind of level um, to have a real impact in terms of uh, emissions and decarbonization. Yeah, I'm really glad everyone's been talking about anxiety and feelings, um, something that I have been doing and trying to do is to talk about, and I'm not the first person or the only person to do this, but the idea of climate grief, the idea that yeah, the science and the news, it's overwhelming and it's scary and you don't know where to start or you don't think you're doing enough. And just generally in a capitalist society, we don't talk about mental health. And like, I'm Korean, so I come from a culture that stigmatizes it. So I think just being open about mental health and your fear and your anxiety is just really radical to do. Um, So I like to bring that up and bring it into my work whenever I can. Um, And uh, we don't have a community garden yet. Uh, Something I've been really thinking about is uh, starting an orchard. (laughs) I think, (laughs) I think like I just, someone just pay me to plant trees. That's all I want to (laughs) do. Yeah. So I agree with what Angela said, you know, starting small with a community garden, it's a great way to, build community, to build power, to build these systems outside of capitalism to feed your community. Because when shit hits the fan, we see already who gets prioritized by the state and who doesn't. So it's going to be up to us to take care of each other. Yeah, I love that this is a feminist podcast where we can, you know, obviously talk about the science and also talk about our feelings about it. Yeah, of course. In open space. Sure. <laughs> of course. Um, have y'all read Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything? Yes. I saw the documentary. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just curious. This is kind of like going going off script here. Um, no, but I – so um, I was an environmental student in undergrad, and like part of my research as a grad student was kind of like – understanding the links between environmental degradation and human exploitation under capitalism. And I did find Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything to be a really like foundational book linking those two things. Um, And it's interesting because her proposal for like a solution um, is uh, what she calls a Marshall Plan for the Earth, which is like, you know, kind of problematic language, but it's also like, she she like goes into much more detail on it and like how all of these 
current systems like under capitalism like we can't we cannot continue to play the game that like we can have any meaningful changes to climate catastrophe under capitalism and like having no delusions under like what the root of all of this is um but anyway all that to say is like i think a lot of what y'all are talking about are like these particularly like localized versions of this too, which I think is really cool to see in action that y'all are doing. I think that can I kind of respond? Yeah, please, 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 please. Um, no, that I think that, you know, is a great insight and, and, you know, she's always so ahead of the game in terms of stuff that now we're, you know, everyone's talking about the green new deal and, and similar frameworks. Um, and, you know, she kind of hit on that, I think at an, at an earlier point, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the thing that I, I completely agree, as I said at the outset, that like capitalism is the cause of climate crisis. It can't be the solution. And then I think Angela or Sus or both kind of said that it also can't be the solution to climate crisis. What sometimes worries me about framing it in those terms, even though I do this, so I get worried kind of as I do this, I'm, just, I'm kind of reflecting on my own language, is that I think some people can take that to mean that we like need to have a revolution before we can deal with climate change. Um, meaning like we need to completely dismantle capitalism. We can't do anything under capitalism. We need to, you know, have the revolution first, um, which I find can sometimes lead people to be actually more overwhelmed because that's an mm-hmm. enormous task. Like yeah, capitalism totally. is a planetary system and to dismantle it would involve like global forms of solidarity that don't exist yet. And a lot of simultaneous, no big deal. You know, right? yeah, no, <laughs> just, no, just like, tomorrow, like overthrow to do list internationally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exercise overthrow capitalism. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, I think that, you know, so I, I guess what I find valuable about eco-socialism is even though it has that kind of revolutionary radical critique within it, it also, and I'm just echoing things that other people have said, I think orients us towards stuff we can do in the present while we live mm-hmm. under this awful system. Um, and I think also more specifically than that orients us towards tasks that and campaigns and projects that simultaneously kind of dismantle capitalism in both revolutionary and reformist ways, you know, depending on the moment and what tactics we you know, employ um, and also address climate change. So I already talked about kind of public and democratically owned utilities, but I think that demands around affordable housing um, that's zero carbon and mass transit that's zero carbon, they get at some of the inequities of capitalism that people are denied the basics of everyday life um, and exploited brutally at the same time. And they get at, you know, creating a lower carbon society. So I think that one way that I deal with the overwhelming aspect um, is to think about well, what what kinds of campaigns do both mm-hmm. um, because otherwise you get into this trap and I've been there in my head of like fuck we have to like overthrow this whole system before we can even deal with climate change <laughs> totally and it just reminds me of like that we have to deal with capitalism before we can deal with racism before we can deal with feminism and those just it's just not true like the way that right. we overcome capitalism has to have an anti-racist element, it has yes. to have a feminist element, it has to have a climate element. Um, and those are just deeply connected to one another. And yeah. I feel like that's empowering um, more so than being like, we need the revolution first. Not that Naomi Klein was saying that, but I feel like one can interpret it in that way. Sure, and so then sure, I want to sure. take a step back of like, you know, how can we piece by piece work through this? Because otherwise I'll never get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like we can't just like casually go from where we are right now to like a Marshall plan of the earth, right? <laughs> like 
(laughs) That was a good horizon. I mean, it's like, (laughs) I mean, I kind of wish we could fucking do that. That would be sweet, but also, also, obstacles. I I love thinking about ecosocialism as process, not something that happens um, like one time or one point that we overcome all of capitalism, but like every time you head out to community garden, every time you talk to your neighbors about like, what's their utility situation and like, how are they able to get to work? And like, are the bike lanes too dangerous? And like, what can we do about pollution? But that is all part of building this future that we all want. And um, I really like the framework of eco-socialism because there are so many facets to it and ways that you can get involved that look like what you might call um, more traditional organizing, like a nationalized grid campaign or things that are somewhat outside, like building food sovereignty. Um, yes educational events and that's really beautiful to me I mean yeah it can totally show up in a myriad of ways um I just am a nerd and like to 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 bring it back to like at least for me part of the origins of like really I think the modern conversation about this I think a lot of it stemmed from her work but if (laughs) y'all are okay with switching gears in a big fucking way (laughs) Um, so there's this fucking thing that's been going on, right? Um, it's called eco-fascism and let's talk about it. What, let's start with like, what is it? And what, like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) Start with eco-fascism. What the fuck? Yes. (laughs) Uh, it's some mad scary road shit. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, some what? Uh, the Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, yeah. Like, the whole premise is this disgusting old man is exploiting women and hoarding water and resources. Like, uh... Wait, someone... I've never seen Mad Max, and someone just told me that I would love it, and now I'm kind of offended. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Fury Road is a lot different than the originals, and, in my opinion, a lot better, but, um... Mm, okay. It's a good depiction yeah. of what of what eco fascism in a sort of you know kind of science fictiony kind of way. Yeah, that it's kind of most extreme. What it might actually look like, but yeah, and tell so the us movie, more about it. <laughs> the movie also has like these badass women who just yes. ride around the desert on motorcycles, oh, killing awesome. people, and they're like the keeper of the seeds, oh. and they like are holding seeds because their homeland was poisoned and can't grow soil or food anymore so they're just keeping the seeds alive until they find a spot where life can grow again so it's um a pretty strong eco-feminist movie i think okay okay now i feel better about having been recommended (laughs) (laughs) i was like what the fuck why are people recommending me watch eco-fascist films but no that's good (laughs) i'm gonna watch it soon then um i think i think like the basic idea of eco-fascism or the way that i like to think about it um and maybe even more broadly i would use the term eco-apartheid because i think eco-fascism might be like a specific ideology that takes root in a um in a in in a climate chaos world um but eco-apartheid i think um, is is even a broader term about that kind of points us towards thinking about how climate crisis really deepens inequalities if nothing is done 
intentionally to stop that. Mm. Um, so the way I kind of describe it to people when I'm first talking to them about it is that a world of climate crisis, you know, 10 years out, 50 years out, 100 years out, in which we do nothing um, to make a lower carbon and more equal society is like the world that we have now, but just much worse. So like all of the familiar oppressions and exploitations and, you know, ways that rich people hoard resources and protect themselves with fortresses and gated communities, all of those things would just be worse and deeper. And there would um, be more inequality along lines that we already know about in terms of, you know, colonial or neocolonial relations and race and gender and all of those things. So um, I think that there's already a lot of empirical evidence that climate crisis just worsens inequality because those that can afford it kind of protect themselves in various ways from rising seas or from uh, stormy weather. And those who are the most vulnerable already socially because they're marginalized or because they're low income or lack basic resources um, are the ones that suffer. And that kind of chasm would just widen. And so the apartheid term is to sort of get at how deep those inequalities could actually get. Like they could get much worse than we already have, which is kind of crazy to imagine, but is the case. Um, and then I think eco-fascism, and maybe I'll let other folks speak to that because I think they're more knowledgeable, but is maybe like an ideology, a sort of militarized bellicose kind of ideology that might kind of take root under conditions of that extreme inequity. Yeah, I think a really good example of something that trends toward eco-fascism is Elizabeth Warren's plan to quote unquote green the US military. Mm -hmm. um, because it's this, it's this clear attempt at her trying to care about climate change, but it's all in the name of American imperialism. Um, potentially in the name of securing the precious metals we need for, you know, solar production and stuff like that. Um, and is like diametrically opposed to eco-socialism. Um, eco-fascism also has this really long history that goes back to World War II, um, and maybe even a little bit before that, of blaming environmental destruction on marginalized groups. Um, so there was this whole part of um, the Nazi movement, which was claiming forests as part of this German identity and um, Jewish people as something that would ruin the forests. Um, and there are like strains of this still today um, that are explicitly white supremacists that believe that like white people are the only people that can care for ecosystems and um, kind of follow in that um, path from all the way back from the Holocaust. So mm. it also, you see echoes of some eco-fascist ideology in liberal environmentalism, even um, when liberals will bring up, talk about overpopulation, um, which is a, just a huge myth. Um, and you have to ask that if the problem with our environmental destruction is that there are too many people, well, who are the too many people? Um, you know, it's not me in this room and it's not whoever I know, it's those people somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, and as socialists, we also know that resources aren't distributed evenly. So not everyone has the same effect on the environment. We know that these problems are systemic, um, but these calls for these calls for concern about overpopulation are basically just a, just right on the path towards eco-fascism of blaming some groups for destruction and holding some groups as above the destruction and the only ones able to fix it. 
Yeah, and some of the some of the like early environmental explicitly environmentalist movements, like in the 1970s in the U.S. Uh, I don't want to say that they were all like this. It, that would be way too broad a sweep. But there were individuals and individual organizations that were into population control as a kind of means of solving the the climate. Uh, well, it wasn't really the climate crisis, but it was more sort of like the limits to planetary resources was how it was framed at the time. Um, and in general, like the population, the idea that population was the cause of many problems, including poverty, um, was in vogue in the 70s. So the climate, the, excuse me, not the climate movement, the environmental movement, it wasn't the climate movement yet, um, kind of tapped into that. Um, so you see these pretty nefarious connections between groups that became, you know, explicitly anti-immigrant or xenophobic and groups that, you know, were initially just kind of environmentalist in their, um, uh, in their orientation. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important to always exactly as Angela was just saying, just they're just factually incorrect. Um, uh, but I think that we'll see these ideologies like proliferate more and more as climate crisis gets worse, but also as we see the rise of obviously like xenophobic right-wing populism around the world. Um, and we can see very easily um, how those two phenomena might interact. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just want to say like, it probably doesn't need to be said, but it's incredible white bullshit that uh, this strain of eco-fascism that thinks that white people are the answer to taking care of the environment when you know historically <laughs> that's incredibly untrue and obviously and then we also know that indigenous peoples have like very sophisticated ways that they have managed and taken care of the environment around them yeah. um yeah. yeah it's bullshit <laughs> Oh yeah, of course, of course. But of course, <laughs> no, it's I, bullshit. No, I, I just, I wanted to say. <laughs> no, I mean, like, please, let's like hammer that shit home. Um, is hammer that home like the saying? Why do I feel like that was like not the saying? Is it? Is that I the saying? Hammer it home. Drive it home. Drive it home. I think it's drive home. Why did I get fucking hammer it from? <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. It sounded right to me. Yeah, okay. me too. I was just like, right yeah, to totally. Me. It's hammering yeah. home. Okay, well, I'm glad that y'all are here for the bullshit <laughs> that is my brain, but uh, also feel free to call me on it. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about the Green New Deal a little while, um, if that feels good to y'all. And of course, like, this can still go in a m myriad of directions, too, but... Um, so Green New Deal, it's a big thing that people are talking about, thinking about. Why is it important? Where does it fall short? What are y'all's thoughts on it? Um, I'll start with just like a sort of broad and positive vibe kind of approach to thinking about the Green New Deal. And yeah. then I think we all have plenty of, um, you know, details and maybe some critiques of what's missing from the proposal or the resolution as it stands. But what, what for me is the most important thing about the Green New Deal is that it links climate change and socioeconomic inequality, and it links it in the body of the resolution, but also in all of AOCs and other kind of supporters and the Sunrise Movement and all sorts of folks that have been promoting the Green New Deal, um, I think very forcefully link that in their, in their discourse. Um, and I'm going to kind of echo again stuff that I think Angela was just saying in response to the last question that um, 
this is not just about linking two things that we think are problems, like inequality on the one hand, climate change on the other hand, but that um, there's a deep connection between an unequal world and an unequal country and the kind of runaway emissions and global warming that we're facing. Um, we know that very rich, affluent people, their lifestyles emit way, way, way more than anybody else. Like even if, you know, they live in a dense city and they might walk to work or whatever, and they think that, you know, they're buying environmentally conscious stuff, just like everything that goes into the amount of stuff that they purchase um, and the amount of like air, airplane travel and all the types of stuff that they do as part of an affluent lifestyle is just extremely carbon intensive. We also know that just 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. And so that's on the sort of like rich 1% side. And then on the sort of rest of us side, those who are the most marginalized are feeling the worst effects of climate change, climate chaos already, and that will only become more the case um, in the future. So there's this deep connection between inequality and climate change. So I think a very powerful part of the Green New Deal is that it puts it front and center. And all of these kind of conservative and then like mainstream Democrat kind of detractors are like, oh, we need to deal with climate change. We shouldn't be like adding Medicare for all and a jobs guarantee and the right to a union onto this already, already like difficult task. Mm. But, uh. you know, I think if we see how deep the connections are between inequality and climate change, we see that the only way to address climate change is to create a more egalitarian society because it's in an unequal society that like the 1% or the 10% or whatever, just the ruling class can have as carbon intense a lifestyle as they want and build a fortress around themselves to protect themselves from sea levels. Um, right. If we create an equal society, we create a lower, and we do so intentionally in an ecological manner, we also create a lower carbon one. So I think that's a very transformative idea, and it's one that also builds a really broad working class grassroots coalition around climate policy. Because if we don't do that, we see what happened with the yellow vest in well, yellow vest movement in France. Very understandably, people rebel when they feel like they're going to have to pay the costs of a transition to a lower carbon society and they're not getting anything out of it, right? So I think it's also like politically astute to, yes, to yeah. address these two things at once, but it's also just like the facts, it's science, like inequality actually drives climate chaos in many ways. For sure. I'll say that I've been an environmentalist for most of my life and kind of like what Theo was saying, the Green New Deal has sort of captured and inspired the public imagination in a way that I haven't really seen before mm -hmm. so it's exciting just to like see it in the news and like kind of capture um being captured by the public mood in a way uh but yeah I you know I think there are <laughs> a lot of problems with it it's it for one it's um it's not it says nothing about the military industrial complex. Mm. Um, there's just so much I could say about this, you know, right. I think it was like in some, I don't remember what the most recent year was, but, and I don't know if this is still true rather, but I know like at a certain point, the largest, um, single entity that was emitting, like the largest contributor to climate change was the U S military also. Yeah, I mean, if you just think about, for one, the resources on the scale to supply these military installations all over the planet. Mm -hmm. um, also, military bases are awful environmental justice uh, for the community. 
issues for the communities around them. They right. pollute, you know, they pollute the water, the air, the they just dump toxic shit, you know. Um, yeah. Why so, not? Like, if we're going to be an imperialist, like, entity, every pocket of the world might as well just, like, not be, not give a single fuck about anything. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and then just um, financially, if anyone says, like, I don't know how we're going to play for the Green New Deal, easy. Like, just stop paying for the defense, you know, the defense budget. Stop paying for fighter jets and drones and shit. Like, like don't go is- to fucking Iran. Like, don't. Yeah. Maybe just don't yeah. do that. And instead, sign on to the fucking Green New Deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the Congressional Green New Deal says nothing about defense spending, mm-hmm. about industrial or militarization about also foreign policy like you know trying to foment a coup in Venezuela uh I don't know um but also like beyond that I when I think of the Green New Deal and imperialism I think of also we can't think of the Green New Deal or solutions to the climate crisis just from a U.S. centric perspective, of course. Um, and Angela alluded to this with the precious mineral mining, um, like lithium in South America. There are huge; it's a huge component of electric car batteries and solar panels. Um, it doesn't mean anything to me if everyone in the United States has an electric car or a fucking air conditioner. Right. Like, if we're still exploiting and poisoning the global South and people who have historically been oppressed and exploited, that's not a just solution to the climate crisis to me. And again, that's part of what makes eco-socialism so meaningful to me is that it calls that out and it calls for the restructuring of these global imperial forces. And in the Congressional Green New Deal, like there's language about how the United States will be a leader in exporting clean technology or shit like that, um, which is just, you know, further perpetuating American economic imperialism. And Mm -hmm. that's not a solution. That's not how, that's not how we're going to fix this. I don't know. I'm running out of. Totally. No, I'm actually so (laughs) glad you brought this up because I think it's a part of environmental, like climate catastrophe that is really overlooked. And Um, you know, I think about it a lot when it comes to electronics, right? Like our laptops, our cell phones, everything, the components that make up these electronics are mostly tin, tungsten and tantalum as well as gold, like to make the like circuit boarding and shit like that. And Mm -hmm. for the most part, a lot of, for, for most of our electronic products, the, the, Tin, tungsten, and tantalum in particular come from the eastern part of the Congo where there's just like rampant violence and like slave labor. And so like there's these global sanctions that are on the Congo to make sure that we don't get products from there because they know that that's the case. But then what ends up happening is like these people smuggle them into Rwanda. It's then shipped from there to Southeast Asia where they get smelted with other uh, minerals of the same quality and then like goes into circuit boards in generally like China and then into our pockets. Right. And so like this globalized extractive 
process that you're talking about is so crucial to this too. And it totally is something that like needs to be a part of eco-socialism and it is totally not something that is like really brought into the picture often. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I um, I absolutely agree with that needing to be a way bigger part of the conversation and also a bigger part of how we think about um, solidarity and how we think about campaigns for eco-socialism in the U.S. Um, I was just in Chile for three months researching the lithium sector, which is not as egregious as what you've just described in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but certainly has pretty intense environmental impacts. Um, and they're not just kind of, you know, beyond, beyond U.S. borders. One of the kind of bellicose um, national security kind of framings for current um, in the U.S. right now with the Trump administration is is kind of domestic manufacturing of, of um, electric vehicles, for example. Um, and that is going to involve potentially, we'll see how legislate, some legislation that, that's up right now works out, but involve like streamlining the environmental process or impact assessments for lithium extraction in the U.S., right? So these front lines and extractive frontiers are everywhere, including in the United States. And, but obviously a lot of them right now are, are beyond our borders. So I think we absolutely need to think about like what, what is an eco-social, how does an eco-socialist deal with that? It's mm -hmm. complicated actually. Cause I think, you know, there's, there's a sort of way you can just say like no to extraction. And that's the thing that I say myself and I'm, um, you know, have, you know, especially when I'm, I'm kind of in the room with activists and in South America, like kind of wanting to support what they're doing, which is just complete opposition to extraction. Right. And I support that in those cases, but then it's still complicated because an eco-socialist society would still need lithium, right? Yeah. Um, you know, a, in, I think much less, and I, you know, I think the point about like the, you know, as Sus was just saying about like my vision of, of the future is not like a Tesla in every garage um but it even you i'm know, sorry vision, what yeah i know oh, sorry <laughs> um but uh, i hope he's not listening um but you know <laughs> Yo, <laughs> never. he would never he could be yeah. a fan i don't know i mean like if he yeah, was yeah, like he fuck him like i don't kind of, no one gives a shit <laughs> i will fight you on this says critical stuff about capitalism but he's also the absolute worst anyways yes, um yeah sure so um, so yeah, but like even, a, a you know, an egalitarian low carbon society in which we collectively consumed as much as possible and had, you know, electric mass transit instead of electric individual cars would still need lithium and still need cobalt as, as of now, though they're trying to make cobalt free batteries. So we'll see, um, and still need nickel and still need a lot of copper. So I'm not, and I'm not saying that I'm just, I don't want to like overcomplicate things so that it seems like there's nothing we can do. But I think as eco-socialists, we need to think rigorously about like, what are ways to design a society and to fight for a society that involves a lot less resource use without necessarily thinking that there's a society that involves zero resource use. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, but you know, again, I'm open. We might disagree among the panelists or the panelists, whatever. I'm an academic. Sorry. That's annoying. The panelists. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of referring to our circuit recently. Oh, it's very annoying, but the, the guests, the three of us here, um, and I'm sure we have different opinions about like how much resource, you know, what we ultimately do need. But I think we can all agree that like dramatically less than the green capitalist version of the energy transition, which is again, everyone having their own EV that basically just sits in their garage most of the day when they're not commuting. Um, and everyone having like these, you know, super fancy electrified homes and blah, blah, blah. Um, we do need 
um, mass transit and affordable housing for everybody that will involve some resource use. But my hope is that that's a much more rational and like within planetary limits form of resource use than the kind of consumerist vision of, of um, you know, green consumption or green capitalism. Yeah, I, it's a really tricky balance to strike between what we need to get around and what all of the abstraction is. And that's why I think a really important um, framework is also degrowth. So um, there are eco-socialists who agree with degrowth and those who have some problems with it. Um, I think that it's a pretty good framework. And basically it says that we need to stop growing uh, global GDP, that this is unsustainable um, and we will not really fix the climate crisis without stopping that. Um, this ties into that export-oriented Green New Deal, um, where it's still pushing to produce and produce and produce, um, and that be this uh, job creation steam. And that is part of what got us into this mess, is not um, thinking about what, we, what our communities truly need and what we are just making because we need to make and we need to satisfy capitalism's need to grow. Um, so I think when thinking about um, resource extraction and what is the proper amount, there isn't really a, a good clean answer, um, but in general, a lot less. And I think eco-socialism and degrowth can let us think about not just um, implementing mass transit, but also how much our lives would really change under an eco-socialist future. And that's not some sort of austerity that capitalism would um, propose or what some liberal, liberal environmentalism would propose, which is, you know, you don't get a car, but you have to be on a bus for like two hours a day and you still work eight hours. Right. Um, it could be a 20 hour work week. Yeah. If we don't need to produce as much, we can work a lot less. We can have a lot more time to spend in our communities and um, turning our lawns into gardens and biking around. And there's a lot of potential for a society that works a lot less, that produces a lot less, but still meets all our needs and actually meets more needs than we are filling right now, yeah. um, just with free time and, <laughs> yeah. and so much else. And just having like the fucking energy to do it because we're all worked to the bone and then we're trying to like organize for socialism on top of working ourselves to the bone. So it's like, <laughs> like we're just like barely, <laughs> barely chugging forward in our mental health. Anyway, uh, it's fine. We're fine. Everyone's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> we're clearly all doing great. What are hobbies? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because I go back and forth, right? Like I I have a hard time with like all legislative stuff, all electoral stuff because it's the capitalist game. Um it you know, it's playing on their terms. And but at the same time, these things do have material ramifications, right? You know, the the Green New Deal would have material ramifications. Um and I don't even know if this is something that we would want to go into at all, but I, I recently kind of was, you know, so my work is in food justice and I, I have the amazing job of radicalizing teens essentially for work. <laughs> um, and 
but we did a kind of crossover event with a group locally called Justice for Migrant Families. And kind of out of that meeting, we were talking a lot about NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement um, Mm. put out by Bill Clinton. And it just kind of in light of, you know, knowing that we were going to kind of talk about the Green New Deal, what it made me think about is like, NAFTA had so many fucking ramifications for the environment and for the migrant crisis and for food justice um, and for like agro, like agriculture in the United States, period, as well as Mexico um, and Guatemala. But it's, um, I guess, like thinking about how legislation like that has such negative ramifications, both in like an imperialist sense, in a migrant sense. Uh, in an environmental sense, et cetera. Like, I guess it like, it makes my brain that's like, oh, we can just organize outside of legislation. Be like, actually, like, we need to also do that. Um, so I'm glad that like we've, we were able to kind of tap into both of those sides when we were talking about uh, the Green New Deal. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's why it's important at all to talk about the Green New Deal for us because uh, as we discussed, like, it's not a socialist vision, but it is in some ways necessary given like the dire situation that we're in. So like, you know, there's both. It's a dialectic experience. <laughs> <laughs> a dialectic, you say. It's mm-hmm. a dialectic. <laughs> yes. Like I and feel like every time would... the word dialectic is said, uh, every socialist heart grows like three sizes. <laughs> <laughs> I would say with respect to the Green New Deal, too, that there is this congressional legislation, but there is still fighting ground. It's not a bill yet. Um, Mm -hmm. It hasn't been decided. It's not being put into place. So there's a lot of room to organize to make it better. Um, I don't think we will pass eco-socialism through legislation for sure. But I think that it is it would be a mistake to not connect with this struggle. Um, It has all this name recognition and people are talking about it and excited about it and hesitant about it. And I have found, if nothing else, it is a great way to talk to people about climate change and capitalism. And I think this is a radicalizing moment, what with youth climate strikes and um, just everything that's going on, that it it's a time when we need to fight on all fronts. And the Green New Deal has a lot of positive potential despite a lot of its flaws. I was basically going to say the same thing. (laughs) Um, uh, So I'm glad we had like a mind meld there. Um, And just to add like one sentence to that um, is that there's just no way that even the imperfect, limited, like not radical enough resolution that exists um, would become a series of legislation and regulations without serious battles in the streets, um, in frontline communities, um, in all sorts of arenas. Um, and I think that AOC kind of knows that, like, and she's, you know, sort of said things to that effect, but I think that we know it, you know, definitely ourselves that like any, even, even something that seems to us like not radical enough would elicit and already has elicited such fierce backlash from the right wing. I mean, literally the Green New Deal is like 24 seven on Fox News. Um, it's like the thing that gets, you know, angry white men the angriest um 
And that's just like a little taste of how intense the opposition will be if this makes it near kind of a legislative process. So I think that like, so to do kind of two things at once, um, in my view, like both to um, defend, you know, what's good about the Green New Deal from conservative and reactionary opposition and the fossil fuel executives. And just like, there's so many enemies, it's hard to know, you know, how to list them all. Um, And to kind of defend what's good about the Green New Deal against those enemies and to also radicalize and push on it from a socialist perspective, from an internationalist, anti-racist, all the perspectives that we've been talking about. So we kind of, you know, have to do both and, but I think that social mobilization is so key um, to that process and it, it just can't be purely electoral, you know, um, uh, just, it just seems like it, it would never work that way. And I know here, um, I know other cities are doing it, but here in Philadelphia, um, there's an alliance of progressive and leftist groups that are using the language of a Green New Deal to talk about a municipal Green New Deal. Like, what does that look like for our city? Oh, yeah. um, and the alliance, this alliance is taking it, you know, further left than the congressional Green New Deal. It's talking about abolish ICE and, you know, reparations for um, Puerto Rican refugees from Maria, um, a lot of them settled in Philadelphia. So just, I guess, like Angela said, it's providing a framework to talk about these more radical ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are nearing our time. Um, mm. I know, I feel like this kind of like flew by, which I, as we've done this for a long time, sometimes I don't know why I'm still surprised by that when that happens, but <laughs> like y'all are so incredible and brilliant and thank you so much for sharing everything. Um, so if there's anything else that any of you want to share, like if there's um, projects or things that you want our listeners to know about, um, totally feel free. You guys have some time still to, to do that if there's anything else you'd like to, to share. Um, I'll do the most obvious plug of all time, which is everyone become a, a member of the DSA Eco Socialist Working Group, EcoSocialist.dsausa.org. Yes. Um, we are a really fast growing working group within DSA, which I think speaks to the excitement mm-hmm. around eco socialism, yeah. also like the enthusiasm around the Green New Deal specifically, and folks wanting to kind of radicalize and and concretize that that conversation. Um, and so yeah, be get involved with us and. Uh, um, I think that there's we one of the things that we do, which I really like, is kind of share really concrete ideas for events or campaigns or things to work on in your own community and your own DSA chapter. So that's my plug. Um, I want to make a little plug. I wrote an article about the Green New Deal and land use, which we didn't really talk about, but um, that's a whole other thing. It was in The Trouble, the eco-socialist um, mag- website, magazine. I'm not sure what to call it. Uh, <laughs> Um, and I guess as like a final little thing to, you know, to touch back on some of the other stuff we've been talking about, like the overwhelmingness of fighting the climate crisis and capitalism, something I like to keep in mind is like, I personally can't get the world to stop and not hit two degrees Celsius, but like each fraction of a degree that I can work to stop in my community helps countless people. Um, and you know, that's kind of the mindset that I, I bring with me. So I just want to put that out there. Hell yeah. Yeah. I would like to second both of those, um, join the eco-socialist working group. And also 
there, there is so much you can do. It's very easy to feel hopeless. It's very easy to feel like, you know, the numbers are so close, but every little bit helps. And also, as always, I would like to just say, um, fuck lawns. They are so bad for the environment. <laughs> oh my god, fuck lawns. Oh my god, why did we fuck not talk about lawn. this? Again? I love I hating on lawns. <laughs> can we come back for an anti episode? Oh my god, yes. <laughs> Let's like just talk for an hour about how lawns are like not only the worst on like an ecological level, but also like the societal bullshit that comes with like the suburban ideal. Oh my god, wow. There's so much. Thank you, Angela. <laughs> yeah, I I would very much be here for an anti lawn episode. <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. We're fucking doing it. <laughs> Um, well, again, thank you all so, so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. I had a great time talking with you all. Um, and I like Zoe and I were actually like contacting each other during this to be like, how do we feel uplifted by these three people when we're talking about like climate catastrophe? So thank you all for kind of having that be the vibe of this episode. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, now that you're either thoroughly depressed or thoroughly inspired, uh, you know, go out into the world and like smash the state. Hey, get out there. Um, in the meantime, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Season of the Bee. You can holler at us. Uh, you can send us your thoughts at Season of the Bee at gmail.com. Especially if you're not a man, you can send us. Your yeah, thoughts. like, yeah, specifically, that would be great. Um, you can become. And a patreon supporter which is really cool we have some like very fun patreon only content including an episode of uh, like a 420 episode of us being very silly as well as um a leftist DD crossover with our comrades at or ogres and organizing podcast um, and so you should definitely get in on that and then there's also like always like new perks that kind of come up with that so um, definitely slide us some dollars on Patreon. And we got some, some merch on our website, seasonofthebee.com. And you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. And I was going to say, Laura and I are starting some Patreon exclusives where we will read your charts. So, um, you know, just to fully embrace us being the astrology hoes of this podcast, send us your charts. Yo, oh my God. We are the astrology hoes. And plus... Like we've already had a bunch of people send us their um, their charts. Like we have like five charts in our in our midst. Oh yeah, this is already a series. Yeah, it's already <laughs> going to be a series. We already have five charts in our midst, and uh, Zoe and I are going to be in the exact same place as each other soon. I'm going to be staying at Zoe's house Woo. and cuddling with her, which I'm very excited about. Woo. But <laughs> during that time, we will be we will be roasting people uh, for fun astrologically that follow us on on this podcast so if you want in on that holler at your girls yep <laughs> okay and that's all love you zoe love you laura bye, bye. bye.